Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. After snow, after winds, we are actually on a rare rain-free day above the village of Kulbeck and I'm in the company of author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk. Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Oh, hello, David. It's certainly been windy recently. In fact, there's been houses, quite a few houses in Cumbria, that have been off electricity now for five, going on six days. So it was a fierce storm, Storm Arwen. And we had snow and ice the last couple of days, and it's suddenly just gone. Yeah. Uh, this morning has been pouring with rain, and uh, looking to the north... The sky is clearing and uh, it is, as you say, drying up. Thank goodness for that. Put us on the map, Mark. Coldbeck, one of the loveliest villages in the county, I think, but one that is off the beaten tourist track. Where are we? It's quite a cool day to be at Coldbeck, but boy, what a fabulous place to be. You're right, it is one of the most attractive villages in Cumbria. From where we are on Falls Brow, we're looking south towards the fells, which are capped in cloud, and we're looking over the Coldew Valley. This is Bacchuskira country, isn't it? And of course, uh, John Peel country, famously. Um, Now, before we get into the thick of the podcast, Mark, two important announcements. We normally reserve these for the end of the podcast, but these are particularly important. Firstly, and with many thanks to our listeners, we've been able to donate £1,200 to Fix the Fells. Regular listeners will know that we dedicate 50p from the sale of each of our Oldswater Way official guides to local charities looking after the fabric of the landscape around Oldswater. And that's it. That's the last print run that we've done, the most recent print run. It's all sold out. So we've been able to gift that, and it's been match-funded by the Lake District Foundation. So £2,500 pretty much is now going to fix the fells. Absolutely great news, and it's, I think, gone towards uh, Gowbera Fell, which is on the Oldswater Way. And the the work that's been done up there has been absolutely exemplary. It's been beautiful, not just effective. And this is where the passion of Fixed Fells come to bear, and the people, the volunteers, and the expertise in it Absolutely right, and I back that. It looks so gorgeous. That's proper skilled stone masonry going on there up the fell, continuing a great tradition. And the second announcement, almost as exciting, is we have finally opened up a Patreon page. We've been asked to do so many, many times, and I just never really got round to it. But uh, unable to afford a cup of tea the other day, I decided I'd do it. So if you want to support us financially, you are now able to do so by just going to our website. There's a little Patreon link there, or a Support Us link, I think it says. And just for £2 a month, far less than a cup of tea at the Lodor Fours Hotel, you'll be able to, um, <laughs> to uh, get well, keep us, keep us going. <laughs> Is yeah. that right? Is that fair, Mark? I think that's fair. Anyway, right, back to Caldbeck. Who's our guest today, Mark? Tony Vox, a man of the village who... Uh, I'm longing to hear more about, although I did, with my wife, attend the launch of his history of the village some, I don't know, three, four years ago. I can't remember how long ago it was, but uh, it it was a great community gathering, and you sensed that the book represents the community. 
Yeah, so Tony, who lives just above the village and is a local historian, has written this fabulously wide-ranging book about the village. And we're going to do something interesting today, something we haven't actually done, I don't think, in Countrystride. We're going to follow the history of a single village right the way back and right up to now and just talk about how things have changed and the landscapes and the people that have shaped this place. So I'm very much looking forward to it. Tony is waiting for us over there in the car park. So uh, let's go and join him now. Well, we've gathered together on Fallsbrow in a car park next to the Fallsbrow limestone quarry, which actually I hadn't been quite aware of. Uh, but I can now look south and I'm looking to the cloud-capped High Pike with Potts Gill, clearly evident, left of it, and then to the right, Roughton Gill, with all the ridges like yard steel rising up onto Great Scorefell and Knot and so forth. I've now got this wonderful perspective of a great landscape and I'm in a company of somebody who's got a real grasp of that, Tony Vox. And Tony, it's great to see you and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. It's uh, wonderful to have this chance to talk about Colbeck, which is really one of the most special places in my view in Lakeland and a place that I didn't really know about uh, until I moved here. I mean, I since I was a boy I used to come up here walking in all the famous places Scarfell Pike, Grasmere, all that and it was only when I had the chance to retire about 20 years ago after working with Oxfam traveling all over the world and I felt having been in most of the big emergencies like the war in Ethiopia and Sudan and worked in India for six years I felt I deserved a bit of a rest so we decided to move up to the Lake District where we'd spent many, many holidays. And uh, by that time, we were already a bit worried about parts of the Lake District being too crowded. And uh, so looking around, we eventually looked at this northern area, um, often called Back of Skidder, which rather implies that you're looking at it from the south, which most people do. Um, but once you get used to living back of Skidder, or the very north of the Lake District, um, you begin to get a different perspective. And the villages round here, especially Colbeck, are really unspoilt in a profound way. They are still farming villages. They're not tourist villages, really. They have tourists. They attract a few people. But th these are farming communities where you can trace back history for thousands of years. It hasn't fundamentally changed. So that leads us naturally into where we're going today. Where's your initial move from where we are at the start? Well, I think if we go to the summit of Falls Brow, it's only about 1,300 feet, I think. We're standing at about 1,000 feet here above sea level, um, which is more or less the same level as the farm where I live. But if we just go up a little way onto the top of the fell here, uh, we'll get a grand view 
as long as the cloud stays up as it is now, we'll be able to see right over into Scotland and we'll be able to see the Colbeck, the little stream becoming a river that gave Colbeck its name, but also has formed a lot of the history around here. And I'll say more about that as we go along. OK, we'll gain yeah. a bit of height. We'll get warmed up walking. <laughs> Well, it's great that you've brought us up here, Tony. Uh, I've never been to the top of False Brow, and today, uh, with the cloud pulling away with a northern, strong northerly breeze, is opening up the view, particularly to the north, over the great Solway Plains and the Solway itself. And I can see, remarkably, far west into Galloway, towards the Merrick Mountains and the Galloway Hills and the Galloway Forest beyond Criffle, that's about 80 miles from where we are. The clarity is remarkable that way. You can see around by Cairnsmore or Cairns Fern, the Lowther Hills, the uh, Manor Fells above Moffat, round by Rhone Fell, the Liddlesdale Fells uh, above Hermitage, round by Christabury Crags above Bewcastle. Further round, it becomes far more obscure towards Northumberland, so you can't see the Cheviot, but you can certainly see the Pennines, uh, starting with Coldfell, sweeping down. There's still some snow, believe it or not, on Crossfell. This leads us naturally round into the valley of the Coldbeck and the great mass of fells rising up to Carrickfell and High Pike, from which the cloud has now drifted. This gives us a chance, Tony, for you to talk to us a little bit about the geomorphology, the geology, the makeup of this amazing landscape. We're standing on a limestone ridge here. We're standing next to a cairn and behind us there's a little tumulus that's probably from the Bronze Age and all over this ridge here there are remains, particularly from that Bronze Age period when the climate was so much uh, better and there were farmers actually up here. Uh, looking south, we see the great dome, as it were, of the Skiddaw Slates that underlie much of the, the northern Lake District. At one time, it was all covered in limestone, and then on top of that, in many areas, there was coal. What we've got here in this ridge at the very north of the Lake District, just behind us is the wall that marks the northern boundary of the uh, National Park. What we've got here is um, a remnant of the limestone and coal that used to cover much of the area that we look uh, to towards the south. Now, looking to the south, the fells are quite bare. Uh, they're pierced by some volcanic activity, especially Carrickfell, which, uh, of all the fells perhaps in the north, is the most rugged. Um, its top is covered in stones, and there's been a lot of speculation about what that represents. Uh, people used to think that it was an Iron Age fort that was possibly even used to fight against the Romans, but now people actually think it's much, much older. They think that it dates back to Neolithic times and that people used to gather there from all over this area and even trade axes there, as they're thought to have done at Castle Rigstone Circle and other places. So 
we're looking at a very ancient landscape in many ways. Of course, the Skiddaw Slates are among the oldest stone formations in the Lake District. And now looking at the scenery in front of us, we can see remains of human activity. Straight in front of me is Roughton Gill, a long flat valley which ends in steep slopes. And on those slopes we can find adits of uh, silver mines that uh, date back at least to Elizabethan times. Some people say the Romans used them, <laughs> we don't really know. But uh, certainly from Elizabethan times onwards, people have been mining up there. Silver for a long time, lead, copper, zinc, anything they could get hold of. And that went on until around about the 19th century, the end of the 19th century, they were mining there. And then over on Carrickfell uh, and beyond there, tungsten was found. And that was mined right through the 20th century and was very important as a source of armour plating for battleships in the First and, and even in the Second World War. So this whole area has been very much supported, as it were, by mining, because when farming wasn't very successful, people turned to, to mining. The other big feature to look at here is the Valley of the Cold Beck. Now, that goes off to the right, over towards Skidder, and to the left, going up towards Mungrysdale and maybe towards Keswick, there's the Valley of the Caldew. Well, the Caldew is much less steep and didn't provide many opportunities for water power. But the Colbeck was brilliant for water power because it is steep. And it also has a big gorge, which we'll visit later on, uh, where the water fell down about 50 feet. That was um, a place where water mills were established in the area around Colbeck village itself. That at one time made Colbeck into a great industrial centre. All round the valley now, we can see farms at about the 800, 900 foot level, just below the open fell, and most of those were founded by Norse people over a thousand years ago. They liked to settle just below the, the open ground. They were livestock keepers, so they lived just below the fells on which they kept their livestock. And even now, most of the names of those farms, like Brownrig, where I live, it has a Norse origin. There's another one over there called Hudscales. Well, Scully is an old Norse word for a place where you took your animals for the summer grazing. So this whole area is completely steeped in history and anybody living here can spend their entire life uh, learning new things about who used to live here and what they did. And the great thing about it is that you can still read it like a book. I mean, where I used to live down near Oxford, um, you couldn't do that. Uh, history had been wiped out by roads, factories, big developments. But here you can see the continuity. You can read back in time, even into the geology, into millions of years. You can see what's been happening long before you ever arrived. And it'll go on long after you've gone as well. <laughs> it's a chilly day today. So called back, does that imply something to do with the nature of the water itself? Beck, of course, is Norse word for a stream. And uh, cold actually does mean cold. Why they thought it was particularly cold, I don't know. But that's what people think is the origin of the name Coldbeck.
we've come down the bank a little way and we've come to the vestige of a shooting butt, a stone-built shooting butt. So this, Tony, implies why the heather's here and how this landscape was used. So we've moved from the Vikings to the Normans. The Normans, when they came, changed everything. They just took the land. I mean, before that, people settled where they wanted to settle. These Norse farms were scattered all over the hillside, and they sorted things out among themselves. But the Normans had a completely different idea. They said, the land is ours. And they divided this area. North Cumbria was divided between the royal forest of Inglewood, absolutely vast, extending from here over to Penrith and Carlisle, and behind us uh, was the Skiddaw Forest, owned by the Earls of Allerdale, uh, which uh, extended all the way from Colbeck, Skiddaw, up to Cockermouth and beyond. So these areas were reserved for deer hunting. I mean, the, the lords didn't often go deer hunting, but they insisted that nobody else had the right to hunt deer and they put heavy restrictions on uh, grazing sheep. The one benefit of all that which we're seeing here is that um, because the sheep were restricted in these areas, uh, you get a lot more heather. So there are parts of the northern fells where you see heather, like Great Calver and parts of Skidder itself where there's thick heather, and there are other parts, Blencathra, where they allowed lots and lots of sheep, and there are very, very few. Up here on Foldsbrow, we were lucky that um, Lord Leckenfield, the Earl of Allerdale, was quite keen on grouse shooting. So he kept the numbers of sheep down. Lord Leckenfield in the 20th century lived in London, and he used to come up here with his friends every now and again, and they used to drive the grouse across the moor where we were just now, and uh, the men with guns would be hiding in these butts, uh, which are rather beautifully built stone like wells in the ground, and uh, as the grouse came over, they would shoot them. When uh, Alfred Wainwright came up here, he was appalled about this, and, uh, you know, he was a great lover of animals. He said the only thing that spoils Fold's brow is the appalling sight of these grouse butts where, and he said, great British sportsmen used to shoot grouse. He thought it was all absolutely dreadful. He thought that great English sportsmen went to Ewood Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Colback has remained quite a quiet valley, and yet the potential for a railway, for a major road, was always there. You can visually see this is a landscape where civil engineers could bring a major railway or a major road, but it's managed to avoid all that attention. Well, it was seriously considered... When they were looking into the need for a railway from Penrith to Maryport, there were a lot of people in favour of routing it up this Colbeck Valley um, because of the mines. The mining trade was very, very important. And there was a big debate in the middle of the 19th, early 19th century between those who said, well, we should bank on the mines to make money. And there were people from Keswick, the hotel people, who were saying, bank on the tourists. You know, that's where the money is. And they decided 
to run the railway through Keswick. So Can't the tourism one again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the Penrith Maryport Railway was routed through Keswick, and of course it, it, it's now uh, out of use, uh, uh, unfortunately. And then in the last century, in uh, about 1960, I think there was a a proposal to widen the A66. Again, uh, it was basically to connect Penrith and Cockermouth and Maryport and beyond. And and once again, people said, well, rather than spoil Blencathra and Keswick area of the Lake District, which is sacred, um, you should route it around this Colbeck Valley. It was quite seriously considered. People looked into it. Um, and it was turned down in the end, and they widened the main road, the A66, under Blencathra, which is still something that a lot of people object to, because it <laughs> and, makes and a lot... And the railway, of course. Yes. Uh, so it could have happened that we would have had a major road coming round here. The whole purpose of it would have been to avoid um, disturbing the Lake District proper, as it were. But then... You know, in my view, it would have spoiled a very beautiful part of the Lake District. But uh, this area wasn't valued as much at that time as perhaps it is now. Well, we followed the sense of the history in this landscape uh, from the Norman times. Uh, It'd be interesting now to move down towards the valley, towards a farm, and get a a sense of where that history moved on to. So we get an ongoing sense of this evolution of this landscape. We've come off Falls Fell over the Turnpike Road and down the access track to Brownrig Farm, over the cattle grid, into the lane and into the farmstead itself, which is fascinating to come to. And miraculously, the sun has come out. It's a chill air, but there's blue sky now amongst the light billowing clouds. But the farmstead itself... It's captivating. I'm immediately drawn to the farmhouse, but also the lateral barns, which all seem to have history writ large. Robert Vaux, the first one who came here in about the 12th century, established a sort of dynasty here. And he was given the task by the earls of Allerdale of maintaining defence in this area. So this became a kind of semi-fortified farm, like many of them were around here, because there were endless wars with Scotland and there were various raiders who would attack lonely farms like this. The farmers had to sort of find ways of defending themselves. And what, what happened here was that Firstly, they put bars on the doors and windows in the barn on my right here, which is probably the oldest building dating to the very early 16th century. It only has one small entrance and you could just about get a cow through there. That's about all. So it would be very hard for anybody, even if they were able to get in, to drive the cattle out. And it'd be quite easy for the defenders to prevent anybody from getting in. So that old barn would have been where they kept the cattle uh, during the time of a raid. And then in front of me, there's uh, the stables. And in there, they kept the ponies, fell ponies, the black ones that you see all around this part of the fells. They used to ride those and 
go and chase whoever was attacking or at least defend themselves. They even had armour which was uh, provided by the earls, uh, we think. That armour, very fine armour indeed, is on show in the museum at Tully House. So what would have happened then is that the alarm would have been given probably by the beacons on the hills around. There was one on the top of Falls Brow where we were just now and that would have signalled to other beacons at Muta Hill, for example, and on Skidder there was a beacon. A hill behind me, Hewer Hill, named after the hue and cry which would go up when there was a raid and there was a beacon there as well. So uh, everybody would get the warning and then the men from the farms round about would come here, they'd saddle their ponies, get their armour on and they would uh, ride up onto the fell and find out where the raiders were and perhaps join with other forces from, from other places. So they were really quite effective in resisting these kind of attacks. There are records, though, of um, raiders coming into Colbeck, and there's one particularly uh, horrifying account of a man in Colbeck who was tortured by raiders to reveal where he kept his money, and he had to tell them where his money was, and a very sad story. But it was a very terrifying time for people because they just didn't get much warning they didn't know what was going on and there was this endless raiding backwards and forwards and of course people from here would then raid back into Scotland and into the border areas so there was complete mayhem and then in the middle of all this of course there was uh, there was the plague the black death which wiped out a third of the population Ooh. most of this came to an end when the crowns of Scotland and England were united under James I and VI in 1607. And James cracked down on the reavers. The wars with Scotland came to an end and a period of prosperity uh, began in this area. And um, the farmers did extremely well in the 17th century. So we'll walk down into the village and talk further about that Remarkable phase where the area blossomed. That was a gorgeous walk down the fields. Uh, the sun danced with us and gave us a wonderful view as we came down the slope from Brown Rig, uh, down the pastures, into a, a secret little tour or lane, whatever you call it. A delightful spot. I expect in the summer it looks all the more gorgeous with wildflowers. And it bursts upon a common with a pool in the middle of it, a pond abundant with ducks. There's two swans, there's coots. Mallard, this is a wonderland of ducks. Amazing. Can you describe where we are, Tony? Well, I often come down here with my grandchildren who love feeding the ducks. I'm afraid they also love chasing the ducks, which is great fun for seven-year-olds and seeing them flying <laughs> off. But uh, actually, this place has a serious purpose. It's not a natural pond. Uh, it was made by making a dam where we're standing now. This sunken area filled up and um, the poor people of Colbeck since time immemorial used to come here to dig up mud to make their uh, hovels I think you could describe them as although what we see today is all stone houses 
There were, until fairly recently, maybe a hundred years ago, there were people living in huts made out of wattle and daub, you know, mud with bits of wood in it. Um, what are known as clay dubbins. Clay dubbins. And this place where we are now is known as the clay dubs, where people used to dig out the clay. And there was a small brickworks here at one stage as well. Uh, looking down from here, mm-hmm. uh, I can see the only bridge uh, that existed since long back in Colbeck. There's now a, a rather bigger bridge, but there's a car coming over it now, and he's only just going to get through. It's a very narrow bridge, and um, I've been down here when a, uh, a coach got stuck in it. They couldn't get through at all. Where does it lead to? It was originally the, the main way into Colbeck, so... If you went to the left, you went to what was called Midtown. And if you went to the right, you went to what was called Uptown, Mm -hmm. Upton. There was Upton and Midtown. And I think Lowtown was actually where the priests lived and the church was. And that was the third manor. There were actually three different manors. And they all came under the Lords of Allerdale. And just by the bridge down there, they had their mill... Since medieval times, the Lord's Mill and their tenants were obliged to come down here and have their grain ground up. And, of course, the miller would take a bit for himself. And uh, the Lord, of course, would... uh, It was a form of taxation. Beyond that um, was another mill. Um, These are mills that existed probably in late medieval period, 18th century. um, And that was to do with processing cloth. That survived into the 19th century, but by that time, much bigger mills had been created. We're going to see one or two of them. And uh, that little mill up there wasn't any use, so they replaced it with a brewery, because by the Victorian period, there were hundreds of mill workers here. There were also the miners still coming down from the fells, wanting something to drink. By the late 19th century, we had about 13 pubs around the village, and about 13 mills as well. It was a heavily industrialised place. I mean, from having been an agricultural centre, the late 18th century suddenly flipped over to being an industrial centre, and uh, there, there were all the sort of supporting people. There were 13 blacksmiths, there were four cloggers who made clogs for the people. Um, there was a violin maker, a, a clock maker, And there were, of course, uh, lots and lots of miners and also the coal diggers. There were a lot of people who went up on the fells finding bits of coal and and bringing those down because, of course, that was very assailable down here. So you can imagine this place by the late 18th century, very industrialised, and that was much earlier than most other places in the Lake District. Pre-industrial revolution, really. Absolutely. Interesting, in your book, you refer to the various processings of the cloth and the wool that went on here, including the use of urine. Yes, (laughs) urine was very highly valued, and there used to be a chap with a a kind of barrow who went round the village every day in the morning collecting the slops. They didn't want them thrown away, you know. He he pissed off regularly. (laughs) I don't know, maybe he even paid for the stuff. Uh, but they needed the urine, I think it's to soften the cloth. And then once they'd gone through that process, they had to hang up the cloth on what they call tenterhooks. Stretching it out. 
Right, there were wire uh, or ropes or something with, with these hooks on and people used to hang the cloth and because of the weight of it, it stretched the cloth out and, and that was done just below where we are now in what is now the car park. So right. if you'd yes. been there even a hundred years ago, you might have seen um, all this urine-soaked cloth <laughs> held up on these tenter hooks to dry and to process. I've sat in that car park waiting for my wife. I've been on tender hooks many occasions. <laughs> yeah, you, you wouldn't want to experience the real thing, I don't think. <laughs> anyway, we're about to see one of the big, well, actually the biggest mill, and it is pretty spectacular, the bobbin mill at, uh, at Colbeck. So we're just going to walk along there. The path leads excitingly upstream with called back into a gorge and this is called the Hauk and I'm amazed at ahead of me this structures I can see there's a tall structure which is like a barn on stone stilts and then there's a stone building beyond a roofless stone built building of various sorts which I presume is all part of the mill and to my right there's a ruined element that probably was some storehouse but above there is the limestone cliff of the gorge. So this is a visual record of a busy industrial time. Tony, can you explain this all to me? We're looking at the remains of what was Colbeck's biggest industry in the 19th century. Uh, it's been restored um, fairly recently, but the, the big barn-like structure on our left was where they kept the wood to season. They used to cut hazel and alder and other trees round here and what they did was then cut it into small lengths of about six or eight inches. They had to be processed on lathes to turn them into bobbins. Bobbins are used for spinning so the thread goes round and round the bobbin and then that's used in spinning and weaving and this factory was supplying cotton mills all over North Cumbria. It was very, very prosperous in its time. And to do all that work on the lathes and so on, um, they needed a huge amount of power. And this was the point at which the most power was available because the call back here drops down about 50 feet suddenly. And it's uh, got a good source, uh, so it's a constant flow. Yes, uh, this never dries up, the callback. Actually, the coal dew coming down from Mungrisdale is sometimes quite dry. This one, I think because it takes water out of all those fells that we saw, Skidor, High Pike, Falls Brow itself, all that water is constantly draining down, so the callback never runs out. And so this was a wonderful source of power. The only problem is that they had to bring the water to drive the wheel and perhaps we'll look at that in a moment. Well, we'll walk through it a little bit further, get a feel of it. It's remarkable place because you're right in the midst of the gorge and the limestone crag is, dominates attention here. And then you come upon this amazing structure where the lathes were set in the mill. And I presume this uh, hollow here was where the actual mill wheel was. And by the looks of it, it was quite huge. 
It was 42 feet in diameter. Some people say it was the biggest in Britain in its time, or the second biggest. It was certainly absolutely huge. And it generated, of course, a huge amount of power because the water was coming over above us from the top of this limestone cliff above us here. Wouldn't there be a launder, as they call it? It was a wooden sort of channel that took the water over the top of the wheel. That would turn the wheel and that operated all these belts and lathes and all the kind of stuff in the factory behind. That was built around about 1850 and lasted for about 50 years, supplying mills all over Cumbria uh, until eventually imports from abroad put it out of business. And the great wheel, this vast iron thing, was dismantled for use uh, during the First World War and turned into munitions or something like that. Bit of a sad ending. <laughs> it's a remarkable structure, just looking back at it, the, the daylight's on it now. Um, can you paint a picture of the working life inside the building? Well, of course, this was before the Factory Acts and there were a lot of children working uh, in the mill and uh, there were all these belts going round and it was, it was very dangerous inside there and they didn't worry too much about health and safety. I'm sure they cared for the children, yeah. um, but there was a, a tragic incident where a boy, I think he was about seven years old, he got his arm caught in one of these belts right. and uh, I'm afraid he ha had to have it amp amputated. He survived, the boy, but it was one of those incidents that led to pressure for greater safety in these kind of uh, mills and eventually far higher standards were introduced. The thing that really brought it to an end though was the, um, the Education Acts which made it compulsory for children to go to school. Before that most children were sent out to work and after that they weren't allowed to go out to work in daytime as it were. So. Uh, from 1870, the children had to attend a school and that more or less brought uh, an end to this kind of child labour. There were huge protests. I mean, there were lots of factory owners who thought this was the end of the world, you know, that they wouldn't get cheap child labour. But uh, fortunately, uh, the humanity, point was made. Humanity won out. Well, we'll leave this intriguing spot. But what we're not leaving is the amazing gorge because the beck runs through a very narrow defile and uh, looks very animated and excited. The path winds up just above it on steps. This will be fun. Coming up the steps, one comes to a, what one might have thought of as a classic romantic viewing station moments, rather like the Grot or Stockgill Force and Aero Force. We are looking at a cascade, a cataract squeezing through a narrow gap. At this time of year, boiling with white water, ivy and ferns growing down the banks of it. It's just idyllic. Can you describe this a little bit more, Tony? At the very beginning of the 19th century, before the bobbin mill was here and so on, tourists started coming here. That was the period when tourists used to come and paint pictures and the time of Coleridge and Wordsworth. They all came here, Coleridge came here and 
enjoyed himself climbing up the, uh, the cliffs that we can see in front of us. Um, he, he loved adventure. The Wordsworths, I think, sort of sat and admired and perhaps wrote some poetry, although I think nothing exists. But this was beginning to be a tourist attraction in the Romantic period. The trouble is, uh, the industry was also getting going, and Corbeck's tourist history in the 19th century came to a, a halt by the mid-century because there was just too much industry going on. When the tourists were coming here, of course, all sorts of stories developed and names for things. They loved to do that in those times. There was a particularly uh, active area of water called the Fairy Kettle, where the water went round and round in a circle. And then there was actually a limestone bridge over the gorge. I mean, it must have been absolutely spectacular in its time. And people loved to come and see the Fairy Bridge. But there was a dispute between the farmer on behind us and the farmer in front of us. And one of the farmers, we don't know who, decided to blow up the bridge. Obviously, he wasn't uh, in touch with the Cumbria Tourist Board or anything like that. And uh, that may have been one of the reasons why the tourism collapsed a bit. Well, we'll now pursue the path a little bit further because we're going to find the house of a romantic figure associated with Colbeck and the wider Lake District. That was lovely coming up uh, from the... Hauk, across a bit of meadow, and we come through a gate onto the road, as you can tell by a vehicle just coming by. And we're coming by a cottage, which has uh, got a gorgeous doorway to it, cream-coloured cottage. Can you give us a little bit of a clue as to what's the connections that make it really interesting? Well, this was the home of Mary Harrison in the early 19th century, and she was well known to Wordsworth and Coleridge. She became a celebrity in the period around about 1800. She was born the daughter of the publican at the Fish Inn in Buttermere. It looked as if she would just live a quiet life in Buttermere, but somehow she caught up with a notorious fraudster. I mean, she didn't know that. He pretended to be a colonel and a lord and goodness knows what. And uh, she married him. For a year or two it went all right, but then it turned out that he was already married to some, somebody else and he was arrested and put in prison in Carlisle. But what did for him was not being a bigamist. The trouble was that in his fraudster life he had forged the seal of the Royal Postal Service. And he was hanged for that. I'm not sure if he got any sentence for being a bigamist, but uh, <laughs> but it created a huge scandal. Of course, a lot of the people like Wordsworth and the Romantics had been to the Fish Inn and they'd ordered a pint of beer and sat there ogling this beautiful girl. She was apparently incredibly beautiful. And, of course, when she came into this terrible tragedy, people raised money for her. But luckily, she already knew a young lad from Colbeck who lived over Buttermere Way, and she married him, Harrison, Tom Harrison, I think it was. And uh, his family owned various lands here, and uh, she moved in here as a farmer. And after that, her life went very quiet. The most celebrated woman of the early 19th century lived here quietly in Colbeck, and she's buried in the churchyard.
So we'll head on down the footway into the lower midtown to find the house of another former famous resident of the village. We come down to the, I think it's midtown, is it here, Tony? That's right. And uh, we come by what will have been the blacksmith shop. And you're pointing me towards a, a white house with grey surrounds to the windows and the door. What's this house? Well, it's the house that made Colbeck famous because that was the house where the song Duquesne John Peel was composed. John Peel was a, a, an ordinary farmer from just outside Colbeck. He only had about 30 acres. He wasn't well off. He inherited a bit of money and... Uh, went absolutely mad on fox hunting. Hardly did any farming. He couldn't care about the farming. He loved to be up at about four o'clock in the morning, galloping off with his hounds, chasing foxes. And he, he managed to get everybody completely mad on the thing. I mean, it must have been most extraordinary. Right at the beginning of the 19th century, all these farmers would rush out of their houses without feeding their animals or something and get on their horses or ponies and go and chase foxes. In fact, quite often they didn't use the horses uh, because the custom round here is actually to hunt foxes on foot. So they would ride off somewhere, get off the horse, and then chase this uh, fox if they could find one. They sometimes went 10 or 20 miles. This became such a sort of amazing thing in Colbeck. Everybody was, was mad about it. John Peel sat down with his friend a man called, I think it's John Woodcock Graves, and they composed this song, and uh, it was very popular around here. Quite. Uh, but it was quite a sort of basic song in the dialect. The first lines were something like, Do you ken John Peel with his coat so grey? His coat was made in the mill, which is just behind that house, uh, and it's called Hodden Grey, and it's the Herdwick sheep wool, and it's a dull grey colour. Anyway... Later on in the 19th century, this whole thing was vamped up. A man in Carlisle Cathedral rewrote the tune, much more sort of jazzy march, and they rewrote the words. And it was not Duquesne John Peel in his coat so grey, but Duquesne John Peel in his coat so gay. And that allowed the richer uh, huntsmen round here, who liked to go around in red coats in order to be noticed, and they then took over the whole John Peel legend and the song. And it used to be sung, maybe it still is, at practically all the hunts, not only in Cumbria, but around the country. The Duquesne John Peel was always the thing that they did at their hunt suppers. And um, it has a slightly tragic dimension as well, because when the soldiers went off to the First World War, um, one of the things a lot of them talked about was that um, the regimental march for the soldiers round here in the Lonsdale Regiment uh, was Duquesne John Peel and they they loved to hear that <laughs> and uh, that used to give them memories of Colbeck and the, the old church and all that so John Peel's song it was a great morale booster for the troops even though it was also a morale booster for the rich huntsman from here and there as well. Of course, the musical took it on as well, didn't it, in the 19th century? So it was taken on by the whole nation as a folk song that belonged to everyone. Well, absolutely. I mean, I can remember 
my grandfather playing it on the piano, and we all knew the song then, and at school we used to sing it and so on. But um, by the 1950s, it had fallen <laughs> a bit out of attention. Um, and if you ask people today, I think you're more likely to hear, oh, is that the disc jockey than, uh, <laughs> is it the jockey on his horse hunting the fox? But yes. uh, He still means something here. That's it. Well, we found ourselves in the little triangle in front of the Oddfellows Arms with uh, the street ahead, with the, the village shop further on down, and uh, that's looking east. And uh, next to us, we've got the farm Fresh Milk. It's called the Milk House. And you've got lovely lintels over the farms, 1700s, 1600s. So you've got interesting evidence of the age of these buildings. You talked about the wealth of the area and then the decline. Well, straight in front of me is a house with a date stone saying 1666. And that was about the time that Colbeck started to be prosperous from farming. The price of wool went up and farmers were doing jolly well. And then, as we've said, they uh, invested in uh, industry and we had over a dozen different mills uh, and a dozen different pubs. But uh, we've now only got the one pub, the Oddfellows Arms. And the name Oddfellows Arms derives from a society, rather like the Rotarians, who used to collect money um, partly to help themselves, partly to help poor people. Because by the end of the 19th century, there were a lot of poor people because the mills were closing. They couldn't compete with Carlisle uh, in particular and Wigton. There was a lot of unemployment around here. People were living in these hovels, the, the clay dubs places. Landlords wanted them demolished. Landlords were desperately trying to make money themselves because there was an agricultural depression. The First World War, about 160 men uh, from around here went off to the war. 40 of them either died or were incapacitated. They came back here and there was no work because the whole thing was in a slump. All these cobblers and carpenters and so on who'd enjoyed a boom during the Industrial Revolution here, they were all out of work. So it, were, it was a really pretty grim time, uh, really until the Second World War. There were a few tourists who used to come here. Uh, the village shop is also in front of me. And there's a sign up there saying how far it is to London and how far to Carlisle and so on. That was, that, that was for the old AA sign. And that was for rather rich people who used to drive around. There was a bit of tourism, but there was hardly anywhere to stay. The mining still went on. On Carrickfell, the tungsten mine was still, was still providing some work. Uh, the interesting thing about that is the Second World War. Yeah, um, well, it was before the First World War, really. I, I, I mean, it's an interesting example of industrial espionage. The Germans realised that there was tungsten here and they knew that tungsten could be used to make armour plating. And uh, they were discovered um, it, around about 1910, prospecting uh, around Carrick Fell. <laughs> and they actually took out quite a lot of tungsten before our government. <laughs> yeah, they really didn't realise that. <laughs> and so at the beginning of the First World War, the Germans had far more armour plating than we did. And it was one of the reasons why we had a disastrous beginning to the First World War with battleships being sunk because the, the Germans had got hold of this tungsten from Kolbeck. 
I mean, of course, the Germans were, were thrown out. And uh, by the end of the war, we had the world's best stock of tungsten, but it was a bit late. Oh, yes. <laughs> Our problems today are probably more to do with incomers. You know, there are a lot of people who've moved into the village. Some people feel that, you know, it's not the same old community. But we have amazing community activity here. There's all sorts of things going on. And we have a wonderful community project which runs a minibus, looks after people in their houses, organises all sorts of uh, events. I mean, we count ourselves lucky now. We might have had 13 pubs at one time, but at least we've got one. And we might have had 20 shops. We've still got one shop and we've actually got a surgery. So we're, we're pretty lucky, really, partly because of this business of being a little bit isolated here. We're far enough from Carlisle and Penrith and Wigton to have our own life here. It's self-contained uh, and resourceful and sufficiently large of a community to have lots of things going on and everybody focused in as a collective and sufficient input of new people who keep the place energised. Well, that's what I like to feel. I mean, I, like, I suppose I like to feel that, you know, farmers are very busy and there is an advantage in having incomers who come in who've got more time to spend on the community. So quite a few of these community projects, Meals on Wheels or whatever, they're run by incomers um, who've got the time to do it. And, I mean, we hugely respect the farmers. And so I think there's a kind of, I say mutual respect because the farmers have got their own way of life but they're not threatened by the incomers except perhaps on this point of price of properties you know shoots up it's very difficult for young people I mean it's not to say there aren't problems there are and lonely people in remote houses and so on and so forth but as things go we're not doing too badly. Anyway, this whole notion of Colvick and its setting, you've given it a wonderful uh, perspective that I'm sure all our listeners will get a great deal of joy out of hearing and have good reason, A, to buy your book and probably just as much to come here and to actually sense this magical place, to wander around it, explore the fields and the setting and the community itself. And it's been a great pleasure and thank you for sharing your time with us. Well, thank you for giving me the chance to blow the hunting horn for Colbeck. It's very, very privileged to be able to do that because um, I wasn't born here and, uh, and yet I feel I've been very welcome and this is an amazing community and it's been an amazing opportunity for me to live here the last 20 years and learn more and more about it. journey's end we're back on Fault's brow we've got some lovely evening light here mark the few clouds that remain tinged with pink cloud base is well up you can see skidder now for the first time bit of snow up there as well i think yes. it's turned into a lovely evening although bitterly cold always oh, moved that way around doesn't it we've moved from mild to the evening and tomorrow it looks set to be bitterly cold but it's winter now, proper. And our last episode on Blencathra 
was the last sort of autumn day. It was, yeah. In fact, after that, beginning of last week, I went up Katstikam and had a wonderful day. It was frosty, a proper frosty day. I felt mm. that that was the beginning of winter. But anyway, it's been a fantastic day. I've really enjoyed the company of Tony Vox. Yeah, God, he knows his stuff. It's lovely, isn't it, to get that really long-term picture of a single village and to be able to read the landscape and how that's impacted on the people and vice versa. Absolutely fascinating. And I didn't realise, Mark, but you hadn't been to either the bobbin mill or to the Hauk. But what did you think? I mean, they're great, aren't they? Oh, yeah, you could see. It's a real coming together of the romantic birth of tourism. But then it was an industrial place and it changed radically. So you've got two things coming together intensively there. The other thing I find really interesting is the accident of decisions in a way. The fact that the decision makers chose not to bring the railway here and chose not to route the A66 up here has left Caldbeck as this really special, quite isolated, but absolutely beautiful village. It's an accident of history that we are have to be so grateful for. Long may it remain the kind of place that it is We're losing the light now, Mark, so we should um, bring things to a close, not least so I can put the heating on in the car. But we've got a really lovely podcast next time around as well. It's our annual Christmas special, and we're with an old friend. Oh, yes. In fact, Alan Cleaver, we're going to see him tonight. I'm looking forward to having a good chat with him, actually. That's right. We're off to see Alan and doing a few readings from his Christmas book tonight. Uh, But we'll be going around Easdale with him, um, which I'm very much looking forward to. And then it's our roundup of the year. Two more podcasts to look forward to in December. But for now, from this bitterly cold but absolutely beautiful viewpoint, 80 miles into Scotland doesn't get better than that. We're saying goodbye for now. Thank you all for listening. It's been great fun. <laughs>